Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast, episode number 359. This is your host, Peter Renton, chairman and co-founder of Lended FinTech. Before we get started, I want to talk about the 10th annual Lended FinTech USA event. We are so excited to be back in the financial capital of the world, New York City, in person on May 25th and 26th. It feels like FinTech is on fire right now with so much change happening, and we will be distilling all that for you at New York's biggest FinTech event of the year. We have our best lineup of keynote speakers ever with leaders from many of the most successful FinTechs and incumbent banks. This is shaping up to be our biggest event ever as sponsorship support is off the charts. You know you need to be there, so find out more and register at lendit.com. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Christian Lang. He is the CEO and co-founder of TradeShift. Now, TradeShift's a super interesting company. They call themselves a trade technology platform, and they really are at the heart of the supply chain. They are bringing technology to both buyers and sellers. They have a two-sided marketplace with 1.5 million companies enrolled. So it's a decent-sized chunk of the entire global supply chain. So Christian has a really unique perspective on what's been happening with supply chains, and we know that they've been in the news a lot the last couple of years. Christian points out it actually started before that, before the pandemic. Supply chain disruptions were already getting going. So we talk quite a bit about that. We also go to the different pieces of his platform, you know, the different support they provide for buyers and sellers. We talk about the use of blockchain technology. He has some very interesting things to say there. He talks about what's next. It was a fascinating interview. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Christian. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. So I'd like to get these things started by giving listeners a little bit of background. And I, you know, I went into your LinkedIn and I see you, you work for the Danish government at one point <laughs> in your career. So yeah. not a typical background for a tech entrepreneur. So tell us a little bit about that. I actually, uh, even more than that, I dropped out of, of university to work for the government, which is probably even more unusual. <laughs> I've always been an entrepreneur and I started my first company right after high school, came out in the middle, like from high school in the middle of the dot-com bubble. I thought there was a really, really exciting what was happening with the internet and I just had to get out there and be part of it and started my first company with my best friend and it was a wild ride. It was a lot of fun. Ended up studying later, did not study technology, actually studied sociology and at some point during that, I really needed money. So uh, I got a student job in the Danish government and I ended up working in the IT policy department at a very actually exciting time in Denmark where there's this massive changeover to e-government and digital processes and everything. And there was a lot of freedom to think and, and be part of it and come up with solutions. And me and, and two friends, we said, why, why don't we switch all of Denmark, Danish government, supply chains and payments to, to internet-based? And this is pretty wild. Like This is in 2004. And, wow. and it was like, what do you mean with internet-based payments and internet-based supply chain and so on? And we convinced people, we were students. I was a student, my, my two friends were not. And when we got approval for it, they realized I was a student. And they're like, well, we can't really, I mean, you're a student, you can't drive a, a major policy initiative. So <laughs> what are we going to do about that? And I said, well, I guess I better, you know, quit what I'm doing. And they're like, well, that's awkward because we are also not just the Ministry of Digitalization, but also education. And <laughs> so <laughs> I might be breaking a, a waiver I, I signed back then about I'm not talking about me dropping out to, to work for the government. But 
we worked on it six years. Um, we, we essentially attacked it as if we were a startup within the government and we built digital infrastructure for the Danish uh, government. We built a lot of stuff, e-government, open source, digital signatures and decentralized payments, which is really hard right now. Uh, mm -hmm. Did the same for the European Union. And then me and my, my two colleagues we working with, we dropped out of that and then we started trade shift and, and, and essentially with a vision of saying, you know, what can we do that's much bigger than this? How can we take everything we learned? There's many really exciting things. And I don't think anyone would expect to hear this sentence. There's many exciting things about working for the government. One of them is you can get to work on a scale you can hardly imagine, right? Like you get to build stuff on this massive scale. And right. that was really, really exciting. Sorry, that was a long answer. That's all right. That's totally right. So, you know, it sounded like you had six years in government and then you started trade shift. I mean, when did you sort of decide that there was really something commercially, there's a real big commercial opportunity here? I mean, it was in a massive transition, right? We were moving to cloud computing away from on-prem and in the consumer space, there was this massive explosion of networks, right? LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, they all came in this time period. And I think we had uh, this realization that as we move to the cloud, right? As consumers, as we move to the cloud, the cost of connecting stuff drops radically, right? If we're all in the cloud, connecting two services is easy. If we're not in the cloud and we're on-prem, it's really expensive, right? And that means that networks are sort of the natural end state when you're in the cloud, right? It's very natural. You're not just uploading your pictures to Picasso to store them, you're uploading them to Instagram so you can share them. Right. Uh, and the reason you're doing that is the cost of connectivity is so low. And you said, well, we think the same is going to happen to business. And this is going to be probably the biggest information of business in a lifetime, right? If, if all of the connections companies have are digital instead of, you know, paper invoices, purchase orders, and, you know, old school, that's going to change the world. So let's, let's create the company that can do that. And, and that's what became TradeShift. So we saw, I think we were lucky with our timing. It was right in the middle of that transition. And, and we came out at that point and said, look, we think, you know, you can build something like LinkedIn, but for companies and, have them just connect, and the moment they're connected, they can trade. Right, right. Maybe that's um, it's a good segue into just. Can you explain exactly what TradeShift does today, and how you're connecting like you know huge, huge numbers of companies around the world? Yeah, today we are we're the world's largest B two B network for trade. So we connect around 1.5 million suppliers globally with all of their buyers. We operate in 100 countries, and I think this year we're going to probably do around a half a trillion dollars of trade. Right, so it's some large, large numbers and. What we really do is we help buyers and sellers connect digitally. Um, my LinkedIn metaphor before is, is actually quite accurate. Anybody can sign up and trade shift, create an account. They can go invite their customers. You can go invite your suppliers. Originally, we just sped bottom up from all of these suppliers coming on the network and inviting their buyers. After a while, the last enterprise customers started coming to us and say, hey, do you have an enterprise solution? Because we're getting so many inbound requests. We said yes and ended up building a lot of software on top of our network for managing large, large quantities of sellers and all of the interactions you have with them. So today, uh, Tracy, there's a business. We build payment automation, B2B marketplaces, and analytics for enterprise customers on top of this network. And for sellers, we build fintech products, embedded fintech products like payments, FX, helping them getting paid early, and software-based credit cards and similar, right? So essentially, we have two-sided marketplace monetizing both sides of this equation, but always with the principle of trying to deliver value first. Right, right. So, so you've got a, a unique window into sort of the global supply chain. And obviously, we've heard the word supply chain mentioned endlessly over the last couple of years, and even more so, I think, in the last couple of months. So, I'd love to get your perspective you know, on where, where we are at. Like, it sounds like there are major disruptions happening, but what's your perspective on the global supply chain? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think there has been major disruptions happening, by the way, the last six, seven years. It's, it's not a new trend. It started with China, US trade war, then we had Brexit, right. then we have the current conflicts. And of course, there was also the little pandemic. And <laughs> then we're throwing in a few other things. I think the first thing people got to remember is that we have had a very unique period of peace in the world and stability for the last 70 years. If you go back before 70 years, you have around, around 4,000 years of uninterrupted bombs of conflict. Right. And, and the only thing that really separates the world over the last 70 years from those previous 4,000 is trade. It's that countries and people and, and has traded across, and that trade has been a relatively peaceful. So people set up all their companies, their supply chains with the expectation of this stable, simple, easy to trade in world. And obviously what's sort of happening right now is a little bit more reversion to the norm of, of having instability. And I think a lot of companies and a lot of supply chains got caught off guard. If you build everything, for instance, with an idea of zero inventory, just-in-time delivery, all of these things, mm-hmm. you have a big problem. Like say the UK introduces a border and you're having a truck arrive at your factory every 10 minutes with parts, but this is a case for a lot of manufacturing, and you now have a 20-minute wait at the border. Right. I mean, that just destroys your whole production. So what we're dealing with right now is just a lot of supply chains that weren't prepared for this form of change that we're seeing. And you really have to reset and rebuild the whole system with some different context. And obviously, for us, uh, we've been advocating for a long time. Well, if your supply chain is digital, if you have real-time analytics and stuff, it's a lot easier than if everything is manual and your data is four weeks delayed, right? Right, right. So from sounds like from what you're saying, we're not going to go back to sort of the world you know, pre-China trade war, pre-Brexit, where things were stable and everything was just in time? It sounds like supply chains are changing forever. Is that what you're uh, saying? Yeah, I think we're living in a future state of continuous change. And and there are both good things and bad things about this, right? Like, I mean, I think what we're also seeing right now, for instance, for the first time in many, many, many years is the West sort of united in in a set of values that you're fighting for. And, and that's good, right? I mean, but on the other hand, obviously, what happened to consumers with inflation is bad. But it's also very important to understand that, for instance, the stuff that's inflation on right now is not our parents' inflation, right? Everybody's freaking out about inflation. But if you peel it apart, it's two things. It's housing cost, it's fuel prices, and it's certain food groups. And those things all, I think, can reasonably stabilize. I mean, most, most consumers would like, especially those who own property, and there's a lot more people owning property today than there were 20 years ago. They would prefer that property to increase in price, right? That's not necessarily a bad thing. Fuel is pretty much temporary it's based on a lot of these conflicts. And, and then you have a lot of food. Is a, it's, it's actually not to do with the production cost of food. It's more to do with the logistics cost. Right. And that can also normalize, right? So we might see continuous things that change, but, but I think a lot of the things we worry about right now is probably the wrong ones. I'm much more concerned about, for instance, financial services and supply chain access to lending and capital. A lot of companies are completely stretched to the limits when it comes to that stuff and payment terms keeps going up. So those are the things that I, I'm nervous about right now. What about like with the, the Russia invasion of Ukraine, you've got, and there's all kinds of sanctions that seem to change pretty regularly. How are your clients managing that? Because I imagine there's there's some that get directly impacted. And I presume you, you probably had Russian clients, I imagine, before this war. What's, just tell us a little bit about how the last you know two and a half months have been. Yeah, I mean, I can't mention names, but I can tell you that every single major logistics company in the world uses our software, right? Most of the big, fast-moving consumer goods companies and so on. So we don't have a customer that's not impacted by this. Right. I think it's some incredibly hard choices people are being forced to make, right? I mean, we've seen situations where we have to sort of look at, you know, what's being delivered, 
people are mad that stuff is still being delivered to Russia. But then when you look at it, it's a milk substitute for babies, right? Like you, you can't just sort of put yourself in the middle of all of those choices. You got to be, you know, a little bit more looking at from one level up and saying, well, what is our role, right? Our role is to support our customers and enable trade. And obviously, you know, if there's sanctions and laws we have to comply with, we will do that. But I think what's been interesting to see is how quick a lot of these companies have reacted. I mean, we've seen companies reconfigure, and I wouldn't bracket the ones we know on trade shift, right? But been able to reconfigure the supply chain in days, right? right. And, and that would take years earlier. So we think that's, that's pretty interesting to see what you can do, right? I think the other thing that, that's very interesting to see is how big a role, I mean, just to put it bluntly, that logistics play in, in this conflict right now. The reason one side is, is sort of kicking the side of the LIS is essentially they have much better logistics. I mean, you look at the Russian trucks, they're not using pallets. I, I don't believe you can win a war, <laughs> any war in, in 2022 if you don't use something as simple as pallets. And, and mm. we're definitely seeing the impact both directly to the conflict. We're luckily, thank God, not involved directly in that. But, you know, looking at it from the outside, it's, it's interesting. And then obviously, you know, on the bigger picture, we're seeing it every day. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. So I want to switch gears a little bit and dig into what, what trade shift does on a day-to-day basis. You've got so you've got your buyers and your sellers. So maybe we can start with the buyers. On your um, website here, you talk about buying power and how your buyers can really have more power. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, no. So, and by the way, we, we think both sides should have more power. I think there's this really old-fashioned mindset in a lot of big company procurement and purchasing that for us to win, the other side got to lose, right? It's sort of a right. like win-lose or zero-sum game. And I think that's actually honestly not true in most supply chains. In most supply chains, you want your sellers to win too because you want them to grow and invest and become more innovative and build better products and all of these things. Right. So what we do with our software, we can take buyers, the example is our B2B marketplaces. Yeah, our B2B marketplaces came out because... We saw that an awful lot of companies were still doing procurement by receiving old school catalogs. So some of them on paper, some of them would be digital, loading them in classic procurement systems like managing it one catalog at a time. A little bit like purchasing off the Sears catalog, which has been dead for how many years, right? <laughs> That's the heart of modern procurement. And we said, look, I mean, it's clear as consumers, we're using Amazon every day, we're using eBay, we're using all of these new marketplaces, Shopify, all of this. And so marketplaces is a category as a whole that's disrupting this idea of classic procurement. And rather than trying to build a better procurement tool, I don't think that's what we were interested in. We said, can we build the next generation of B2B marketplaces for companies? If you are a huge, massive Fortune 500 company and you want to set up a marketplace for ingredients or for silicon, and you want to invite all of your suppliers to join and you want to run a like it's your Amazon for this category, these categories. What do you do, right? And, and so what we build with buy is essentially like a Shopify, but for the enterprise, right? They can set up and manage their own marketplace. It's invite only, and they can invite everyone on the network that they want to join. And it's sort of like a walled garden where trade happens. Right. And that can be for any category. It can be semiconductors. It can be tires. It can be fuel. It can be whatever you really want. Interesting. Interesting. So what are the main categories? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> We're seeing a lot of indirect goods. I mean, so that's what you normally consider like cleaning powder, um, toilet paper for your corporate offices, all of this printer paper and so on. And then we're seeing very specific strategic marketplaces. For instance, logistic tires is a good example. Fuel is a good example. Silicon could be a really good example from another industry. So those are, I think, pretty representative of the categories. It got to matter to people. It got to be a category where you want to make sure you have a good part of control and, and, you know, can influence. Uh, how that market shapes. 
Right, right. Okay, so let's talk about payments then. Can you sort of describe exactly what you're doing there? As consumers, right, the biggest problem when you want to move money, I want to send you some money is figuring out what app to use, right? I mean, that's essentially it. You know, I'm going to pick an app, I'm going to click a few times and boom, you have some money, right? Mm -hmm. For enterprises, that is literally the smallest part of the problem. The biggest part of the problem is figuring out why and if I should pay you, right? Because if you pay the wrong supplier, if you pay the wrong amount, if you do it without reporting the right taxes, if you do it without having a risk assessment or an internal approval, any of these things, you have an issue. So before you actually pay anyone, you have this massive process. And that used to be extremely manual. You would do a manual check on the seller. You would do a take an invoice and manually type it into your system. You would sort of figure out where it's going to go in the EP. You would figure out the taxes. You got to figure out if you're going to do anything to optimize your cash flow and that transaction, then you will pay. And we automated that whole process and turns to be called a payment automation, right? It's using digital data from day one, using AI instead of humans for approvals and for coding, and just making sure it runs as fast as humanly possible through that process. And it's all digital and data-driven so we can give the CFO and everybody else the tools to, to know what's going on, right? Right, right. And then what about the, the analytics piece? You, know, you talk about, I see it here, the Engage product. So maybe tell us a little bit about what, what analytics that the buyers can have access to. I think most large companies are, are actually kind of normally blind. And in, in, they might know in big picture what's happening in the supply chain. They might know where they're spending their money, for instance, in what categories. But understanding what's happening minute by minute and second by second in your supply chain is really, really hard. And that's where our platform like Engage allows you to do that. You know, it's not just what you're doing, but you can also get a sense of what's going on in the world. Yesterday, we released our global index of trade health, where we we're talking about what's happening in all of these different industries, where we're seeing drops in purchase orders and so on. So this is real-time insights that are super strategic for your business. And because it's a network, right, like LinkedIn or Facebook, we have a network view of the world. And also means it's much easier to compare what you're doing to what others are doing inside that network. Of course, still respecting all of these companies privacy and so on. So, uh, But that's what the Engage platform is about. Right. Okay. Okay. And then you've got like a, a spend management tool, TradeShift Go, and spend management's hot right now. It seems like that there's a lot of fintech companies raising a lot of money and growing fast in the space in this country. But tell us a little bit about what you guys are doing there. Yeah. So I think a lot of spend management is about trying to do stuff after the fact, right? You went and spent some money and it was a bad idea and now you can yell that. It's a little bit like our parents used to do it, right? And we realized, we thought like this is not very optimal, um, you know, especially because for last corporate, right? I mean, there's still what they call rogue spend, 15 to 20% of the spend has not been approved. It's not necessarily fraud, right? It's just you went and bought from a vendor where there might be a cheaper price or you went and went outside the system to get something done. And instead of punishing the people who are doing that, because they're typically the people who want to get stuff done, right? Like, I mean, they're people who take initiative to do stuff. But we said, well, I said can we build a solution that helps empower both the people inside the organization, but certainly also the people who need to control that. And that became Trace of Go. Uh, it's software-based virtual credit card system. So we're working with American Express right now. So if anyone needs to go do a purchase, your sales guy on the road, you need to buy, a, let's say, a TV for a presentation, a projector. You can ask your boss, hey, uh, take a picture of it and your phone and say, hey, I want to buy this. Can I? The boss can look at it, see if it's in the system, say yes or no. And the moment he says yes, we issue a one-time credit card with the amount of that item, hmm. it makes reconciliation and everything else much, much easier, right? So I think there's this big movement of taking cards and turning them away from plastic to be software-based. And that's really, really interesting because that means you can make them programmable, you can use them for one-offs, 
you can give everybody in the company access to a card for a moment. You might not want to give them a corporate card. And that's essentially what we're doing with Tracy Go. So we're empowering spend 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 through actually getting a better user experience. That's really interesting. Yeah. Okay. So let's move over to the other side of the marketplace, the sellers. And, you know, one of the things, obviously what sellers want more than anything is to get paid. And how are you working with the sellers to make sure they are paid? And uh, and what sort of financing are you offering? Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at the history of trade finance, it's a long one, right? I mean, whenever a company bought something, they always try to delay the payment as long as they could. Right. If you go back 40 years, the average payment terms were 15 days. Today, the average payment terms globally is around 60. Wow. Right? But essentially, it's a giant loan taken by the largest companies into the smallest companies in the world. Right. And globally, we're talking around $9 trillion outstanding. Getting that accelerated and get that time down is, is probably one of the cheapest and biggest stimulus packages you can do for the global economy. And so what we worked on with cash was we looked at the problem. And, and the reality is the banks have products, but the banks have a massive amount of KYC. It's very hard for them to lend money to a smaller seller. They don't really do that with trade finance and so on. And then there's factoring, which is very, very expensive and very risky because you don't know. I mean, the seller shows up and say, I have this invoice. Can you please give me money? And maybe it's a fake invoice. You don't know. So you're running with high risk. So it's correspondingly very expensive. So both sides were not really solving the problem, but we had a unique situation where we had all of the network data, right? We knew that the invoice being sent was legit and would be paid. So we built a product called Cash where we accelerate payments on issuance of the invoice. We don't wait for approval because we know the seller, we know the track record, we know the network data. We do it at rates that are very close to trade finance, so relatively cheap compared to factoring. And it's real time on top of our own payment rails. So your money is in your bank account pretty much when you send the invoice. And that's a product that's obviously we launched it in UK and US. And it's a product that's been very, very popular from day one, essentially, right? Right. So how are you financing that? Do you have a working with banks or what are you doing? We are working with a number of different financing entities on the back end. Uh, we are not a bank. We don't want to be a bank. We're very clear on that. We believe in better fintech. It's very, very powerful. We want to design the product and user experience. That's actually really where we care a lot. But on the back end, we're working with pension funds, banks, classic financiers. And in fact, banks, they like it also because it means they can participate on a pool level without necessarily going out and, and taking all of the front-end risk and KYC and, and all of this stuff. Right, right. I imagine a lot of the sellers there, you talked about, you know that the invoice is going to be paid, you know that it's legit. Because I imagine there's a lot of sellers that are just selling to people that are inside the ecosystem, right? And they're not really selling yeah. outside that. Because I imagine if you're selling outside that, you'll have as much knowledge as anybody else, right? No, but that's the beautiful thing. Because we have knowledge about some of the transactions, we can still recover against those, right? So we could say, okay, we can give you credit on invoices that goes out of network. Right. But if we don't get paid, we're going to recover from those invoices you're sending within the network. Gotcha. So that creates a risk pool we can draw from. And, and that's sort of the unique thing about the network that gives you this kind of power. And that's really unheard of. You haven't seen that in any other type of financing in B2B today. Right, right. You touched on it before, but I want to actually ask you about the, you do these, uh, I presume they're like quarterly trade data reports or index, the index you call it. But tell us a little bit about the Q1 report. I imagine this was, this was really interesting putting this together, but uh, what are some of the highlights? Early during COVID, one of the things we saw was very early in COVID when it started hitting was a complete drop off. Purchase orders just fell off the wall, right? And what that is, is it's big companies assuming the consumer demand is going to go down. Right. Right. And so they're adjusting to production early, as early as they possibly can. So they don't take a hit on sitting on inventory they can't sell. And then purchase orders in towards the end of COVID started coming up again, which was essentially 
they were getting ready thinking this is over. We can, we can now move to the real world again. I think what's probably pretty hair racing about the Q1 report is that we saw a larger drop off in purchase orders than we saw in the first quarter of COVID. Wow. The downstream impact of that is going to be pretty massive. It's going to have consequences for supply chain's ability to deliver. Your supply chain is not just you dial it up and down, right? I mean, there's a lot of infrastructure needs to be maintained. There's a lot of supplies need to be available, capacity, all of these things, right? So it's a lot easier to turn down than it is to turn up. And, and of course, the problems we have right now in turning it up fast enough is what's caused the inflation problem, right? So ironically, as we're curbing inflation by increasing the interest, we are making companies adjust by turning down the capacity again. I'm afraid that's going to create another supply shock and probably also another uh, down-the-road inflation shock from that. Right, right. That is uh, not the good news. The report is out, is out, and I think it's worth reading. It's a quick one and lots and lots of data in there and what's happening in the economy. And I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes so people can have access to it there. So I want to ask you about blockchain because several years ago, when blockchain was just sort of becoming hot, everyone thought, well, supply chain finance is a perfect use case for blockchain technology. You've had a front row seat to really tech innovation in supply chains. I presume you explored it, but what are you doing anything with blockchain today or where, how do you view this technology? We view it very, very pragmatically. We're not sort of pro or against blockchain. I, I feel sometimes being asked if you're for or against blockchain is a bit like asked if you're for or against databases. Uh, <laughs> we, we use databases extensively in our technology. We use blockchain a little less, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But I think if you look at the wave two years ago, there was a lot of, I would say, pretty much naive sentiment about what supply chains is. And they were like, oh, we can use this technology for supply chain finance. But a lot of the problems that blockchain solve are not really the problems that are the main problems in supply chain finance. And I'll give you some examples, right? A big problem in supply chain transactions is transactions get done, redone all the time, right? You send an invoice, but actually there was a mistake. So it gets reissued and sent again, or, you know, legally you got to hold the payment because there's something happening inside the corporate. So supply chains, I think if you read it from outside, you think it's these big, well-polished, almost programmatic machines that's running. But when you see them from the inside, it's these messy, with huge gaps, chunks of information that's bad, poor data, and people that are making a lot of decisions, right? And I think that's at the heart of the challenge, which is mm -hmm. supply chains are social networks. Because at the heart of all of these decisions, there are people, and it's a good thing there's people, because if there weren't people, the world supply chains would come to a grinding halt because there's people who are making calls every day, right? Like a container ship goes over the landing and, you know, 6% of the containers drop off. That happens all the time, right? So... So the problem with blockchain, you can probably guess where I'm going, is that it's irrevocable. And it means once you put a transaction on it, you can't undo it, right? It, right. It's there forever. And then you can say, for a lot of companies, that's actually a bot, not a feature, uh, because they want to have that fluidity. And another thing is, and this is another big challenge, right? I mean, if you're using public blockchain technology, well, then you're putting all of your data out there for the world to see, right? So if you're a Nestle or Unilever or somebody else, would you want the world to see what you're buying and at what price? Probably not, right? So for a lot of the blockchain use cases on supply chain finance, you will immediately go and say, no, we want to keep a private chain, right? But, but then you're in a world where you say, well, what is the overhead of running a private chain? What are you really going to get from a technology device versus a, you know, so, so why do it, right? right. And, and so blockchains for me is really, really good at what, solving what I call multi-stakeholder problems. Take a problem like uh, you're in China and you want to figure out if that stake really comes from a cow. That's a really hard problem to solve because there's so many steps from so many different players involved where blockchain is a great technology because you can use a public chain and you can have everyone check in along. And because you want to have public scrutiny, 
That's a good use case. Identity is another great use case. But transactions and payments, and I mean, you've got to remember some large companies, their profit margins is basis points, right? right? So paying the gas fees for Ethereum is, is not really very attractive when you're running, you know, few hundred billion uh, two in uh, a year. Right, right. Okay, so then can you explain the different ways you make money? I mean, I imagine you've got multiple revenue streams. Can you just sort of go through them? We think about as a flywheel, right? Or two-sided marketplace, if you want. We have these large enterprise customers that are creating demand and liquidity within the network. And then we have this massive base of sellers that are selling stuff and, and generating supply. And to the buyers, what we typically sell is, is software as a service-based product, meaning you pay an annual subscription uh, to get access to our network and to our tools to use that network and get value out of it. And that's been a core business for many years. We started with payment automation, then layered in marketplaces, then layered in analytics. And then on the seller side of the network, all our products are either gain share based or value based. You know, a lot of players in our space, they started out by saying, oh, we're going to charge a toll. So if the seller want to send an invoice or if the seller want to join or communicate with the customer, they have to pay a tax. I'm sort of really, really against that model. I think you should always provide value before you take some. So all of our products are the principle. Well, if you're sending invoice to TradeShift, then you want to get paid on day zero instead of day 60. We'll take a fee for that because we're providing you a service. Or if you want to lock in the lower FX or other things, we'll take a fee because we're providing you with a service. Right. So that's our business model. And, and the good thing is, of course, the better products we build for sellers, the more sellers join, and then the more buyers will want to join the network because there's, there's a bigger ecosystem. And the more buyers there are, well, the more demand there are, and the more sellers want to join. Right, right. Gotcha. Okay, well, let's close with sort of a, a future-looking question then. What, what's next for TradeShift? What are you working on that's, that's interesting? So right now, I think we are working more and more on fusing financial services and software. And what we see is that the last generation of fintech was very much about just trying to build consumer-based products that was a bit better than what we had. Mm-hmm. And I think the big lesson from that was the company that took charge of the user experience and didn't just take a bank's products and bundle it on top, but really rethought what is the purchasing, KYC, sign-up, all of this as an experience. They're the winners. And it's actually the same in B2B. We want to design a set of financial services and products that are a great fit for the global trade supply chain embedded into the software from scratch, right? So we started with payments, we started with cash, we started with cards. We're going much further, insurance, FX, all of these things, and working with the right partners to, to embed them. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I have to leave it there, Christian. Really fascinating talking with you. Uh, you've really created uh, you know, a company that, uh, as you say, is right at the hub of this sort of global supply chain that we're now living in. And I appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your thoughts today. Thanks, John. Okay, see ya. Well, I hope you found that as interesting as I did. That really was such a fascinating conversation. I was chatting with Christian after we stopped recording and I made the comment that, you know, he really has a pretty major competitive moat here because it's not something that companies could easily shift. And he, he said that, again, the example of a very large consumer goods company that everyone would know said that they would, you know, they'd rather change out their accounting system than they would move from trade shift because they've got, you know, tens of thousands of customers that are using this system to transact. So it's really at the core of what of what these companies do and you know, what TradeShift has sort of positioned themselves now as really a crucial piece of the global supply chain. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.